was a week ago today that golf lost one of its great legends, Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer passed away last Sunday night at the age of 87. And Arnold Palmer truly changed the game of golf. The game of golf had always been for men who were rich. But Arnold Palmer was a working man. And he was every man. And in the end, golf became a game for men and women and people of all socioeconomic status. He was a game changer. It all happened because he was born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, about 50 miles outside of Pittsburgh. And he was born on the wrong side of the tracks. There's a place in Latrobe called the Hill. And the Hill is where the wealthy would live. And that's where they came who were members of the country club. And they would come, the children would come with their families and they could play golf. Arnold's father was the groundskeeper. He was responsible for watering the grass and fertilizing and mowing the grass, making the course look great, keeping the machinery running, the tractors and the mowers. He was also the teaching pro at the club. No, Arnold learned how to do all the jobs working to run a country club. That was his responsibility. And whenever the course was closed or everyone else was gone, he could then play on the course then. He was four years old when his father cut down a set of clubs and gave him his first clubs. And he went out and he learned how to play golf and discovered that he loved the game. His father went by the name Deacon, and he was a deacon. I mean, he was very disciplined, he was very hard driving, and he laid out the expectations for Arnold. Arnold did work hard. He too was disciplined. And he practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced, so much so that by the time he was eight years old, he was close to shooting par golf. In the end, he would go on. By the time he was 11, he started to caddy. And that's where he finally made a little bit more money. And he enjoyed being a caddy. And he found that he could play better than all the people who were older than him. By the time that he went into high school, he started winning tournaments. By the time he went to college, he went to Wake Forest on a scholarship, continued to do well, then went to the Coast Guard and served our country for three years. And when he got out, at 26 years old, he finally turned pro. It was in 1955. And in 1955, his very first year, he would win the Canadian Open, the first of 62 wins on the PGA Tour. But it's 1958 that Arnold went to Augusta, Georgia, and there he won the Masters for the first time. Now, you need to understand that the Masters in 58 isn't like the Masters today. I mean, in 1958, you could walk up to the gate and pay your $5 and get a ticket and go watch the tournament. I mean, I know for many of us, it's kind of on our bucket list. Is there any way we could ever get a ticket to the Masters? And how much would it cost? It's a whole different world. But 1958 was the first year of television. The first year that the Masters was covered on TV. And Arnold Palmer won. And everybody started to talk about Arnold Palmer. When he came back in 1959, it will be the second year for the Masters to be on TV. And they came to realize how important it was to have a crowd. And so they started trying to get everybody in town, come out and go to, the, go to the tournament. Camp Gordon was an army camp not very far from there. 
And they went to Camp Gordon and said, If you will come in uniform, you get in free. And so all these soldiers came to watch the masters dressed in their uniform. Now, they didn't know the players. I mean, they were the working men. They hadn't fought all the rich and the... No, they were the working men. And Arnie, well, Arnie was the working man's hero. Arnie was the man who won last year. So all these soldiers wanted to follow him and be a part of his gallery. The other thing that the masters did was they would hire the soldiers to go work the scoreboard and you put up the numbers and take them down at the end of each hole. And so we don't know who it was, but it was one of those soldiers who was working the scoreboard when on the back nine, here came Arnold Palmer and the gallery and you had all these soldiers in it and he wound up saying to the media, well, here comes Arnie's army. First time anybody had ever used that term. But that's what it looked like it was. In 1960, Arnold Palmer came back and this time he won again. And by now his fame was growing and the crowds of just everybody was growing and with more and more fans and all of the soldiers, when he came to the end after he won, he thanked his army for being there for him. And that term was now coined and you would hear about Arnie's army to this day, all of those who are the avid fans of Arnold Palmer. Now it wasn't just because Arnold Palmer was such a good golfer it's also because he was so approachable. He was such a, a kind and good man. Now you see, he believed in signing autographs. He never turned anybody down who asked for an autograph. And whenever he wrote it, he always took the time to write it slow enough that you could read it. That's kind of unique for sports players. But he said, if someone asks for your autograph, you write slow enough they can read it and you look them in the eye and you speak to them. He felt that was important. You see, Deacon had taught him the person in the gallery is the same as you. You are no better than the man in the gallery. But when everybody's calling you king, when everybody's calling you the greatest, it would be easy to forget to be kind. But Arnold Palmer never did. He was kind. He was approachable. And because of that, he moved golf from being a game for the wealthy and elite at a country club to being a game that anyone wanted to play, man or woman, rich or poor. Now, he was a game changer. This morning, I want to start a new sermon series entitled, Game Changers. You know, sport is an important part of the American culture. I wonder how many millions of people went to a college football game yesterday across America. I wonder how many will be going to a football game today. I think of how many families are participating in Little League Baseball or football or gymnastics or volleyball, or soccer, millions. The Smithsonian in Washington just opened a whole new museum to the history of sport in America. And so I thought it would be kind of fun if for a few weeks we would stop and look at sport figures that literally changed their sport 
and change the world. And then look at a biblical character that would show us how God could use us, ordinary, average people, through our faith to be game changers too. And I wanted to start on the very first Sunday by looking at Josiah. King Josiah is probably not somebody you think about on a weekly basis. Josiah was the king of Israel from 641 B.C. to about 609 B.C. It turned out that his grandfather was Hezekiah, a very good king, but his father Manasseh was a bad king. For 350 years after the time of David, there had been many bad kings and only a few good ones. And so now his father dies when Josiah is eight years old and he becomes king. He had not been raised really in a religious family, hadn't been learning all about the Torah and the things he was supposed to do. His father had been basically pagan. But Josiah becomes king. And there are those who are around Josiah who want to teach him the stories, help him to learn the history of the people of Israel. And so as they begin to teach him, something resonates with his heart. It just makes sense. It speaks to his soul. And so he decides that he's going to use money from the kingdom to restore the temple. And as they start restoring the temple, they discover the book of the law. Now scholars have argued they about this, many think it was the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book in our Bible. It is a book of laws. Some people believe that what happened was when Manasseh was king and he was being pagan and let the temple in disrepair, that they hid the book of law to protect it. And it was forgotten about and they found it when it was being restored. But other people said, no, no, it's when Josiah came to be king and it was safe now that the religious authorities begin to compile all the things that have been written down through the centuries into one book that they then call the book of Deuteronomy, the book of law. We don't know for sure. All we know is they found the book. And they brought it and they read some of it to Josiah and it cut his heart. For he realized that as a people, they were not living what God had asked them to do. So Josiah called all the people to the temple. Young and old and powerful and weak, he called people to the temple and they read some of the book of the law. And then Josiah made a covenant with God to say that he and the people were going to follow the law all the time. For Josiah, it became his one thing, his priority. And so for the rest of his life, it would be the thing that he would focus on. What would wind up happening, he went out and tore down the altars to foreign gods, Baal. He ran off the priest who were the foreign priest. He fixed up the temple. He brought back the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant and not the one with Harrison Ford, but the Ark of the Covenant that he brought back with that Moses had been carrying to the temple. And and then he started again to have people observe Passover. You remember Passover is the celebration of the historical event when God led the people of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness and finally the promised land. It's how God's people became his people. Well, 
Jews celebrate the Passover to this day. But in the late 600s, they weren't celebrating the Passover. They were forgetting who they were. And so Josiah reinstituted, we're going to celebrate the Passover. We will follow our traditions and our rituals. And he would do that till he died in 609. He'd be killed in battle fighting the Egyptians. Well, 23 years later, you had the Babylonians come along and conquer Israel and carry them off into captivity into Babylon. When this happened to cultures, many cultures just assimilated and disappeared. But the Jewish people, they've been reminded about their faith. They've been following the traditions now of celebrating the Passover and who they were. And when they went off into captivity, they continued on. And they stayed strong. And when Cyrus and the Persians conquered the Babylonians and the people of Israel got to come home, they came home a nation because of what Josiah did. It was a game changer because Josiah was disciplined day in and day out, year in and year out. He made his commitment and he carried it out for the rest of his life. For four weeks, you and I looked at the one thing. For four weeks, I've been asking you to think about what matters in your life. Your relationship with God. Your relationship with each other. What are you passionate about? Well, now I want to start this Game Changer series. And what we're really going to talk about is, what are you going to do? If you know what's important to you, how are you going to do it? How are you going to live it? How are you going to change your life? How are you going to be a game changer? And I think the first thing I wanted us to look at was discipline. Two things I want to say today. First of all, I love the scripture here in our lesson that winds up saying Josiah with his whole heart and his whole soul was committed to following the law. With his whole heart and his whole soul, he was committed to following that plan. It takes hard work and commitment week after week and year after year in order to be a game changer. It's about a month ago, I, I was flying up to Chicago. I had a meeting with our general board of pensions. I sat on the board of directors. And it was one of these early flights. And I, I got out to our airport. And the only direct flight is a small commuter flight. It's one of those small jets. When you come up to it, you duck down to climb onto it. You can't carry any baggage on there. There is no room. There is one seat next to the window, and then the aisle is not as wide as this pulpit. And then you got two other seats next to the window. You know what I'm talking about. People hunch down as they walk down the aisle. I made sure I had a window seat, but I came in and I got seated, and everybody else was getting seated, and I already had my books open. I was working. And once everybody see me, got to take off. I looked over, and sitting right next to me was Billy Donovan, the coach of the Oklahoma City Thunder. And you know, I know what it's like to be sometimes interrupted when you're out in the public. And I, I looked at him; he was working, and I was needing to work, so I, I just kept working. But after a while, about halfway there, I was really done. I kind of closed my book, and I looked over, and he'd closed his book. So I leaned across the aisle and I said. So what do you think the season's going to be like without Kevin? 
<laughs> Billy broke into a smile, and I, I just got to tell you, he was so approachable and so warm and just very kind, and we just started talking about a basketball season, talking about the team and about this player and that player and who do you think was going to rise up and what was going to happen, and we just started talking about basketball the rest of the way to Chicago. But as we were going along and talking about basketball, he said, so, so what do you do? I said, well, I'm a Methodist minister. And I started telling him, I said, I'm right on the edge of downtown at 15th and Robinson. I knew he was a good Catholic, but I said, it's okay to come anyway now, you know. <laughs> so we visited, and, and finally I said, Billy, I'm going to start a new sermon series soon called Game Changers. And it's all about people who've done things that changed their life and then how did they take that opportunity to change the world? You obviously have the power to be a game changer. Is there anything that's happened in your life that changed it for you? He thought about it for a moment and then he said, well, yes. You know, I've always wanted to be a coach. And what I've come to believe is that the Lord puts the right person in your life at the right time to help you with your dreams. And I found that's always been true for me. And I think it's true for other people. But what I also believe is it takes hard work. And just because the Lord puts the right person in your life to help you with your dream, you got to work hard. And I find so many people don't want to pay the price. And I thought he's right. We live in a culture where we like it quick and easy. But if you're going to be a game changer, it takes discipline, hard work over a period of time to change your life, to help change the world. I do believe God will put the right person in your life at the right moment. But you still have to work hard to be disciplined, your whole heart and your whole soul to follow the commandments to follow the way. Do some of you remember there was an experiment back in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s out at Stanford University. They called it marshmallow torture. You remember it? It was a fascinating study. What these researchers did was they, they brought in kids who were four, five, or six years old, put them in a room, sat them down, and in front was a plate with a marshmallow. And then the experimenter said... Uh, there's a marshmallow. You can eat that marshmallow anytime you want. You can eat it right now. But I'm getting ready to leave the room, and I'm going to be gone for a little while, and when I come back, if you haven't eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you a second marshmallow, and you can have two. Or you can eat the one marshmallow now in front of you, or you can wait, and I'll come back, and you get two marshmallows. Now, the experimenter left. They had the cameras rolling to see what these kids would do. And for some, as soon as they closed the door, oh, man, that's good. But the majority of kids tried to wait. The majority of kids tried for delayed gratification. And so they had the camera, and they'd be showing them, and these kids would... Look at that marshmallow and just sit there. And then some of them, after they got to looking, they'd go. 
I just got to close my eyes. I just can't look at this thing here. This is too hard. Some would turn around in their chair and look the other direction. I don't know. I don't know. Then you had some that'd pick up the marshmallow. They'd smell it. And then some. Mm. Didn't eat it. Just got a good lick or two in there on it, you know. Some of them put it in their hand, and just like it was a dog, they start to pet the marshmallow. (laughs) They'd squeeze it, they'd hold it, they'd put it back down on the plate. What they discovered was, of all the children who tried to have delayed gratification, one-third made it the 15 minutes that they had to wait. One-third managed to wait before they ate the marshmallow, and so they got two. Well, that was all fascinating, but really what was fascinating was these researchers came back and they did a follow-up study 40 years later. 40 years later, they looked at all these kids who had been in the experiment, and what they discovered was the third, who actually had managed to wait the full time, well, they were different. On average, they had scored far higher on their SATs. They had more education. They seemed to be healthier and less challenges with obesity. They had higher paying jobs. Their life was different. Because at an early age they had shown this capacity for discipline, delayed gratification, to wait. For your whole heart and your whole soul to be committed. What a special day for us to have our new uh, kneelers here at the altar. I mean, they are so beautiful. I told you the story earlier, and I ask you to stop and think about that. Six years. Six years from the time we first begin to say, wouldn't it be great if, and have a dream, to all the discovery and all the research and all the designing and all the work, Six years before we'd finally lay them down here for all of us to enjoy. A lot of people had to give their whole heart and their whole soul and stay dedicated. I was telling you about Edmund, St. Luke's and Edmund. It's their last service in the building. And how these people have had to each day, each Sunday, week after week after week, set up tear down with the belief that one day we're finally going to move into a beautiful building. A place where we can have marriages made and baptisms celebrated, funerals celebrating people's life, sing Christ the Lord is risen today and silent night. God's house where they will worship, it's taken discipline, waiting, you know, I, I feel it is so special having our El Sistema Orchestra with us today. You know, I, I just have to tell you, well, first I've got to tell you, they've already heard all this once. <laughs> they sat through the 830 service, you know, so they're now sitting through 1050. And you guys are good. I'm impressed. I was there for, back in uh, uh, September the 3rd, 2013, when... So many of these kids all came together for their very first day. 
That was a powerful day. Our first day together and to talk about what does it mean to be an orchestra. And then I, I came back and I made sure that I was there on the day when they got their instruments. I'm sure it's a day you'll never forget. The day that they set these cases in front of you and you opened it up and there is a beautiful new trumpet or French horn or you found a, an oboe or a bass or a violin and the first thing they had to teach them was how do you take it out of the case? How do you put in the mouthpiece? How do you hold a bow? How do you handle your violin? And so they started on that very first day and they begin to learn. And I, I was there to hear you play your first note, if we can call it that. <laughs> I heard that first, or blowing your horns. And now, now I look at where we are. I, I mean, it is truly amazing. It's taken day after day and week after week and year after year. For these last three years, in order for them to be at the park now where they're making beautiful music. And... Lori, or Lexi, Lexi Morrow, she, she wound up being a, she's in seventh grade now. I don't know if you noticed, she was conducting uh, the orchestra while she was up here. Seventh grade, and she knows so much more about music than I do, and uh, already being up, up here to, to be conducting as the rest of the group is playing. What an, what an amazing accomplishment. It didn't just happen. It didn't quick and easy. It's day after day week after week, year after year. Grades have gone up and they make beautiful music. When you give your whole heart and you give your whole soul to be committed, you want to be a game changer, it takes discipline. And secondly, if you want to be a game changer, it can't just be all about you. It can't just be all about your glory. It can't just be all about your wealth. It can't be all about your pleasure. No, you've got to be committed to something bigger than yourself, about blessing life. It's more than learning to play an instrument. It's being a part of an orchestra and the beautiful music an orchestra makes. You and I can change our lives by being disciplined, but if you want to be a game changer, you've got to care about something bigger than yourself. You've got to care about blessing life. When Josiah made the commitment, I mean, he was giving up all kinds of pleasures the pagans were enjoying. He was becoming disciplined on having kosher and following his own kind of meals. He was giving his wealth to renovate the temple. No, it was costing him something, but it wasn't about him. He was trying to make the Jewish people God's people. And he was a game changer. You know what I loved about Arnold Palmer? He knew the things that mattered to him, and he kept them few. He'd tell you his family. And golf. He loved to fly, but that helped him with the golf and the family. And he loved children, but he loved children because he wanted to help them experience golf and do whatever he could to help them. Paul Trice, who uh, I consider him a part of our family of faith. He lives up in Grand Rapids, but he worships by online. He was a controller for many years, the FAA, and would come to Oklahoma City. And whenever he is in town, he came to worship. 
But Paul sent us an email this last week telling us about Arnold Palmer because he worked as the controller in Latrobe Airport. He worked there for 15 years, and so he got to know Arnold Palmer. And he said one time Arnold Palmer had won a golf tournament and was flying back in, and he called and said, Paul, how's the traffic? Well, now that can refer to air traffic, but it also meant something else. And Paul understood, and he said, well, the traffic, you got cars on both sides of the road lined up waiting for you. And Arnold came in, and he landed. And Paul said, I'll never forget looking out there. And Arnold got out of his plane, and there was this boy, five, six years old, standing on the tarmac, had a golf club. And Arnold saw him and just went over and took an inordinate amount of time to teach this little boy how to hold a golf club. He wanted to help him love the game and change his life. And he said he was always doing those kind of things. You may have read an article in the Wall Street Journal this past week by Bob Green. A fascinating story. Bob Green is an author. He's a columnist. He worked for the Wall Street Journal. Has had a very successful career. But he talks about when he was a young man. He was a teenager. And his dream was to be a reporter. And so he was living in Columbus. And he was working at the newspaper there. But he was just kind of a gopher. He was still in school. Worked there some part-time. But Arnold Palmer came to town to play in a golf tournament. And so he went down to cover the story, if you will. And he got down there and Arnold teed off on the first hole, hitched up his pants, came down the fairway. And as he came down the fairway, Bob Green made a sudden impetuous decision, went underneath the rope, went out onto the fairway and up to Arnold Palmer and said, Mr. Palmer, I need to ask you a question. Now you don't do that. Not in the middle of a tournament. And Arnold Palmer turned around and said, Who the heck are you? Well, I'm, I'm Bob Green. I, I work for the local paper. And Arnold had to make an instantaneous decision. What is he going to do? And so he's looking at him, and suddenly Bob realized, Here came the marshals. And he realized this was not a good decision. He was about to be carried out, thrown off the course, and how embarrassing that was going to be to everyone. And he's standing there, and Arnold Palmer puts up his hand, and then he answers the question. And then he kind of motions them off, and he said, just walk with me. And Bob said, I walked with Arnold Palmer the next 18 holes. For the entire round, I was within two or three feet, asking whatever question I wanted to know. Seeing how he interacted with other players. Seeing how he interacted with the crowd. I was right there with him through 18 holes of this round. And when the round was over, I just slipped on off and I was gone. I want to read you what Bob wrote. I left the course with my heart pounding. Had this really transpired? I wasn't supposed to be a writer at the paper I was just supposed to be a kid doing whatever grunt work the staff needed done. But that day at dinner, without telling anyone what I was doing, I wrote a story about what had happened. Palmer was gone from town by the time the next morning edition was hitting the front stoops, so I'm sure he didn't see it. The headline on the story was, Antics of Arnie, Amusing to Army. It's probably not much of a piece, but it meant the world to me because it was the first byline I ever had in a real newspaper. When late Sunday night I heard that he had died, 
I said a silent word of thanks for a long ago kindness. It's funny how such moments linger. Palmer undoubtedly never thought about it again. And I've never forgotten. It was a game changer. When it's not all about you, when you're willing to be disciplined, when you want to share God's love and bring hope to the world, God will use you to be a game changer. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.